So all the elders of Israel came to the king at Hebron, and King David made a covenant with them before the Lord, and they anointed him king over Israel. Would you all please pray with me? May the words of my mouth and the meditations of all of our hearts be acceptable in thy sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. Early on Wednesday morning, while many of us were adorning ourselves with red, white, and blue, making plans for parades and barbecues and fireworks, uh, there were a group of people who got on a boat and they traveled to Liberty Island. Liberty Island is right next to Manhattan, very close to Ellis Island. It is where the Statue of Liberty can be found. The 4th of July is the biggest tourist day for Liberty Island in the entire year. They see 33,000 people every July 4th. It's the biggest day of the year for them. And the first group that arrived at the island that morning, uh, they disembarked from the boat, they made their way across this kind of small island. They looked at the Statue of Liberty as she stood poised, yearning for the humble masses to be free. And within that group, there was a smaller group of people who looked like else. Seemed like they were there to celebrate the country's independence. Except they sort of moved off to the side and they unfurled a very large white banner. And that banner had written across it, abolish ICE. ICE as in Immigration, Customs, and Enforcement, with a lot of uh, exclamation points at the end. And they didn't really do much more other than hold a sign, so people didn't really pay them much attention. They continued to explore the island and look at the Statue of Liberty. But then one young woman from the group had them boost her up on top of the pedestal in which the statue stands, and then she climbed even further onto the feet of the Statue of Liberty, and she waited. And of course, the police came to arrest her. She was trespassing, doing something she wasn't supposed to do. And as the police got closer, they realized they couldn't quite get to her because of how high up she was, and she started screaming at them. I will not come down until the children are reunited with their parents. I will not come down until the children are reunited with their parents. Presumably, she was there as an activist against the, the policy of separating children from their parents at our southern border. And so she continued to shout this. And for three hours, the police did not know how to get her. They couldn't rig up the ropes the right way. They couldn't quite get their harnesses to work. And they had to shut down all travel to or from Liberty Island for three hours on the 4th of July. And after three hours, they finally were able to make their way to the feet of the Statue of Liberty, and they arrested her. As she continued to shout, I will not come down until the children are reunited with their parents. And as I, I watched this on the news later, of course, we were out celebrating the 4th of July. We had no idea that this had happened. But as I watched the newsreels later, as I saw the handcuffs placed on her arms, as I saw her escorted back onto the boat, I thought, what is the cost of her victory? I mean, she will probably go to prison, have to pay some steep fines. What will be the cost of her victory? And then, was she even victorious? What was she hoping to accomplish? Was she really willing to stay up there until the children were reunited? Was she trying to make a name for herself or draw more attention to something that was happening? What is the cost of her victory? Scripture says that all of the tribes of Israel, all 12, came together to speak with David. They echoed the profound words of Genesis of their earliest ancestor by saying, 
You are our bone and our flesh. Saul was once king, but you are the one who really led Israel. And they anointed David king. He was only 30 years old. After 30 years of serving the Lord, from striking down Goliath to attending the needs of the mad king to lamenting over his death, David finally became the king. When you imagine David in your minds, what do you picture? Do you see the little shepherd boy with his perfect curly locks running through the fields? Do you think of David dancing before the Ark of the Covenant with nothing but a loincloth? Do you see the humble king walking among the people of God? David is the de facto king figure in all of Scripture. From this point forward, he, even more than Moses, is the archetype for what it means to lead God's people. Solomon, David's son, will ask God to make him more like his father when he rules. The prophets who come later, they will remember the faithful times during David's reign while looking out at idolatry in their midst, even during the days of Jesus. The people of God will look for a new David to lead the revolt against the imperial power of Rome. And we might like this version of David that is often handed to us, the Goliath killer, the lute player, the psalm scriber, the king who united Israel. But it all came with a cost. With every great victory, there is a loser lying in the ditch. And David is no exception. I brought this up a couple times before, but it's helpful to know that someone like me does not just pick the scriptures we use on Sunday at random. Years ago, there was a group of ecumenical Christians, that means Christians from all over Christianity, who compiled a thing called the Revised Common Lectionary. It's a cycle of four readings for every Sunday for three years. It's designed to help bring congregations like you through the great narrative of scripture without being constrained by the choice of your preacher. And today is no exception. The lectionary, this compiled list of readings, something that many churches around the world are reading the same thing today, it says that the Old Testament reading should be 2 Samuel 5, 1 through 5, and 9 through 10. It's a brilliant little vignette in David's rise to the throne of Israel. But notice, there are three verses missing. 2 Samuel 5, 1 through 5, and 9 through 10. Why? Why do we skip over three verses? Sometimes verses are omitted because we are brought to the conclusion of a story without being weighed down by superfluous details. Sometimes the narrative is interrupted and it makes sense to jump from one place to another. But sometimes, sometimes the lectionary omits verses because they're difficult. Because they make people like you and me uncomfortable. And we don't know what to do with them. So I don't have to ask you to do this, but I would like each of us to actually pull out our pew Bibles once again. We're going to go to 2 Samuel 5. It's page 218, so you don't have to go looking for 2 Samuel. Page 218, the Old Testament. And if you look down in the bottom left-hand corner, you will see our passage. So, And what I read for us before, we, we read about how all the elders joined together, how they anointed David king. We read about how he was 30 years old when he started to rule. We read about how long he ruled. But before we jump to verse 9, when we learn that he occupied Jerusalem, we have to learn what he was willing to do to achieve that victory. So if you look at the bottom, there should be a section that says, Jerusalem made capital of the United Kingdom. We're going to read verses 6, 7, and 8. 
The king and his men marched to Jerusalem against the Jebusites, the inhabitants of the land, who said to David, You will not come in here. Even the blind and the lame will turn you back, thinking, David cannot come in here. Nevertheless, David took the stronghold of Zion, which is now the city of David. David had said on that day, Whoever would strike down the Jebusites, let him get up the water shaft to attack the lame and the blind, those whom David hates. Therefore it is said, the blind and the lame shall not come into the house. The lectionary, which thousands of churches across the world follow, omit those three verses. And those three verses completely change the emotional impact of the story. Because without those three verses, all we learn about is David becoming king. But when we read those three verses, we learn about what kind of king David would be. Victory comes with a cost. David sent his warriors on a surprise attack mission into the city through the water shaft. However, they would not only sneak through the shop of this sort of water shaft to surprise their enemy. No, David also ordered that they would massacre the blind and the lame, the weakest of these. And it's after that carnage that they occupied this stronghold and named the place the city of David. It was a great and decisive victory for the people of God, one in which even the blind and the lame were left bloodied in the streets. Scripture is no joke in this crazy and bewildering assortment of poetry, prose, and pragmatism. We discover these incredible mountaintop moments of God's glory, but we also get the deep valleys of humanity's shame. It is often said that victors, those who are victorious, are the ones who write the history books. And this is very true. Because where might we find the details from the Jebusites' perspective? Where can we read about the plight of the blind and the lame left to die in the city of David? We can't read any of that. Because they lost. And yet when we look at the life of David, we know and we remember that his first act of king is taking the city of Jerusalem and uniting all the people of Israel. But if we follow the lectionary, if we skip over those three verses, we lose sight of how far he was willing to go to do so. On Wednesday morning, uh, my family and I piled up our supplies in our radio flyer wagon, and we made our way down to our neighborhood's 4th of July parade. We sat in the limited shade, and we waited with great anticipation as we heard sirens and marching bands in the distance. For more than an hour, we cheered and celebrated all sorts of people from our community who marched past us in celebration of our country's independence. Hours later, we gathered with some neighbors for a backyard barbecue, and we watched as our children splashed around in a kiddie pool. And I spent about 20 minutes thinking about whether I should jump in the kiddie pool. We exchanged stories of Fourth of July's past, and we offered thoughts about future celebrations. And in the evening, I rocked my son to sleep with the faint smell of gunpowder in his hair from all of the fireworks I had just lit off. And we could hear the distant pops of fireworks in his room. It was a great day. It was really, really good. It is one for which I will always be grateful. Because I love living in this place we call the United States. For the freedoms I experience to worship the God I love. To gather with people like you every Sunday to worship this God. But throughout the sea of red and white and blue, 
between all the hot dogs and the hamburgers, surrounding all the bright colors that lit up the sky, was this constant and ringing reminder. What price did we pay for this? Or perhaps better put, what price did others pay for this? This country, our love of it, it hedges very closely with what Jesus calls in the Gospels idolatry. When the country we live in becomes more important than the God who created us, when the lights in the sky on the 4th of July shine brighter than the bread in the cup at this table, when we care more about what's happening in D.C. than what's happening in Woodbridge, we have a problem. And the problem we have is that, like David, we forget the tremendous cost of our victory. No, on the 4th of July, we get up, we get our food, we get our red, white, and blue on, and we don't take the time to repent for the millions of lives that have been taken in order for us to form a more perfect union. We ignore the stories and the plights of native peoples from whom we stole this land. We dismiss the broken systems of racial inequality that are very real. They're very, very real, and they all began with black and brown bodies that were stolen and forced into labor here. We overlook how women were and are still mistreated and disrespected for no reason other than their genitalia. What we have here in the U.S., it's pretty good. Friends, in fact, it's the best. But it all came with a cost. People matter. Regardless of whether they are blind or lame, whether they are native or immigrant, whether they are black or white or male or female, people matter. But for David, some people didn't matter. David occupied the city of Jerusalem with the bodies of his own people by showing up in flesh and blood and bone, by sneaking through the water shaft to kill the weakest among them, the blind and the lame. Centuries ago, this country was occupied with bodies by those who showed up in flesh and blood and bone, by stealing the land from those who were here before, by breaking the bones of those forced to work the land, by belittling those who bore the next generations in their wombs. David occupied Jerusalem with violence, with threats against the blood and the bones of others. And so too, America is consistently occupied with violence, with threats against the blood and the bones of others. Violence, it seems, is part of who we are. And that same violence, it was present in Jerusalem centuries after David stormed through the water shaft when the gathered people shouted the name of a different shepherd, though this time they said, crucify. With every hammer and every nail that went through his bones and through his flesh, echoes of the past and the present and the future rang for everyone to hear. With his cross hanging high in the sky, all of the bodies whose blood rushed through the streets of Jerusalem and every broken body that would pave the way for this country were also held high for all to see. Because in Jesus, we discover the real victory. It's a triumph that came at the cost of God's own life. At this meal and the bread and in the cup, we find the peace of Jesus that occupies us when we feast. In these pews in which you sit in the spaces between you filled by the Holy Spirit, we experience the beginning of a new reality, one in which victory is not defined by violence or death, but by grace and resurrection. 
David is a far more complex character than we ever give him credit for, and America is far more complicit with violence and brokenness in the world than we often remember, but that does not mean we should dismiss both of them or break them down. We can still rejoice in the shepherd boy who united Israel. We can still celebrate the country in which we live, but we cannot forget the cost. We cannot forget the blood that has been spilled in both of their names. Because in Jesus' life and death and resurrection, we encounter the end of sacrifice. The end of violence as a means by which we change the world. Jesus has already changed the world. Jesus occupied our place on the cross. And as scripture says again and again and again, God is with us. offer this to you in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, one God now and forever. Amen.